0: How do you view the police in your community? Positively, negatively, or somewhere in between? Your perspective probably depends on who you are and where you live. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll discuss
1: police and community relations.
0: Ferguson, when you hear the word, what do you think? I think of the images of protesters and the militarized police clashing beneath the seizing ingredients banner after the grand jury decided not to indict Officer Darren Wilson in the shooting death of Michael Brown.
1: Yeah, the interesting thing about it is when Michael Brown was first killed, I knew about the incident, but I didn't necessarily associate the community of Ferguson with his name. It wasn't until the riots after Wilson wasn't indicted and watching the news coverage that I began to pay closer attention. The first image I have in my mind is of Don Lemon, and it was of him getting tear gassed, and there was just a constant cloud from gassing and burning cars and buildings, and it was that moment, those riots, that that coverage brought Ferguson into all of our living rooms,
0: and personally, I couldn't not look away. And then we went there. Yeah. There were some local interests in Ferguson and run a facing project. Community didn't feel much different than our hometown, which is kind of terrifying to think that Ferguson could happen anywhere. Downtown, glass doors and windows shattered during the riots had been replaced by plywood and art. A quote from Albert Einstein was painted above a black and white cross. Peace cannot be kept by force, can only be achieved by understanding. Another painting of plants and roots read, they thought they could bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Then we walked to the site where Michael Brown was killed.
1: I wasn't sure what to expect at first. I mean, the images on the news made it seem like this apartment complex, and, and it was. But to get back there, remember, we had to walk through this neighborhood, and it was similar to my own. Ranch homes, tri-levels, lined the road, kids played in front yards. There was even a guy sorting firewood. And we're walking down the sidewalk, and then, bam, right there, this multi-layered teddy bear memorial to Michael Brown, the place where he was gunned down by the Ferguson police the spark that started a community uprising and broader conversation around the country about police
0: and community relations. Something we haven't shared yet, this was on Martin Luther King Day. After we left the memorial, we attended a lecture at Washington University by Ambassador Charles Stith. Stith is a former ambassador to Tanzania and at the time served as a director of the African Presidential Archives and Research Center at Boston University. He said, police brutality is not the disease, it is the symptom. Indifference is the disease. He said that Darren Wilson wasn't called into the area. He was the sentry, not there to protect and serve, but to contain and control. Ultimately, the U.S. Justice Department did find alarming patterns of racial bias in the Ferguson justice system, including a court system that generated revenue largely on the backs of poor and minority residents. And Ferguson is one extreme example of when
1: police and community relations are not good. It's one that we saw up close, but since that time, we've had the opportunity to learn from community members, officers, and academics on the ingredients that make policing work. When it isn't about law enforcement only, but becomes multidisciplinary, taking into account history, psychology, social work, and
0: focuses on a balance of not only hiring on strength, but also soft skills. Today's story comes from our hometown of Muncie, Indiana, and is from Facing Community Policing. The storyteller recounts his experience as a black officer working in a predominantly black community. The project was led by Dr. Keisha Warren Gordon, an associate professor of criminal justice
1: and criminology at Ball State University, and she'll join us later in the show.
2: The other side of the bar, the voices that aren't heard. An anonymous story as told to Jakari Wilbert and Elizabeth Beatrice from Facing Community Policing, performed by Chris Mack. Back in March of 94, I started working reserves. I'd go walk through the neighborhoods and I met a lot of people. It was way out of my comfort zone. But you know something? It was pretty neat. The neighborhood. They were very accepting and were glad to see me. When the storyteller says working reserves,
0: he's referring to the police reserves. Not all states employ reserves, but the state of Indiana does. Remember the time Shaq worked as a police officer? Mm Mm-hmm. No, you don't. <laughs> I
1: know I don't. Yes, actually you don't, sport. you don't want that sports at sports. I
0: don't know. So he was a reserve and perhaps even more famous or infamous was the time Eric Estrada from Chips and Ozzy Osbourne's son Jack worked as Reserves in Muncie for the show Armed and Famous. Now, I do remember that only because I kind of secretly wanted to break the law when they were in town just
1: because I wanted to get pulled over by one of them. Because I remember people around town saying like, oh my gosh, I got pulled over today by Latoya Jackson was also <laughs> here. And she was a big one. People wanted to get pulled over by. And um, I, yeah, and I, I missed my chance doing that. But, you know, the interesting thing, reservists are individuals who work part-time and they receive an abbreviated training they look just like full-fledged officers same uniform same badge same vehicles but they don't have the authority to make arrests so i could have never gotten arrested by latoya as much as i really wanted to so the storyteller's reserve status isn't that relevant to the story but there is one interesting tidbit we want to point out until 1993 reserves in indiana
2: required no training that's kind of crazy right Then I started working at the jail. The inmates would get loud, disruptive, start calling me names and stuff like that. I'd go over there and I'd just sit to talk to them. Let them vent. They just need to be able to talk to somebody. If I was contained in a room for 24 hours a day, I'd go nuts too, you know? So let them vent for a little bit. It's not hurting me. It got to where we had a mutual respect in there And I started getting to know people by their street names and stuff, joking around with them. I got hired on a police department in 99. When I first started patrolling, I'd see people I met in the jail and I'd say, hey, what's up? And they start talking to me. Then I started thinking, man, I kind of wish I would have gotten to know their real names. I went to one place where the guys used to hang out over in Whiteley. And I mean, there's a lot of people that hang out over there. I was riding with my partner and I stopped, got out, started walking up and there's probably about 150 people out there. And it's just me walking up there to go in to talk to them. I was like, hey, what's up? To one of the guys and he came up and gave me a hug. All of a sudden, we heard a click. Your partner just locked the doors, he said. My partner was afraid to get out of the car. I was comfortable. I knew a lot of these guys from the jail. It's not the best place to meet, but you know, I was on good terms with them. I talked to them for a few minutes, then get back in my car. Click, the doors were locked. I can assume that
0: his partner was afraid. Was this fear motivated by racial bias? Bias can be explicit. Someone can be racist and deliberately discriminate. But biases can also be buried and less apparent and maybe not even known to the person with the bias. This is referred to as implicit bias. Subconsciously, we may treat people differently. We don't know which biases are always at play, but we do know that black people are treated differently than white people by the police. A study from Stanford found a 5 to 10% drop in stop black drivers after sunset, suggesting black drivers are being racially profiled during the day. The Center for Police and Equity in Oakland, California, found that while black residents make up 28% of the Oakland population, they account for 60% of police stops. What's more, black men were four times more likely than white men to be searched during a traffic stop, even though officers were no more likely to recover contraband when searching black suspects. Police departments are recognizing this. CBS surveyed 150 departments and found that 69% of police departments are incorporating implicit bias training, which is often mandatory. In the trainings, officers are taught to slow things down, get to know people,
2: and have more positive interactions with the community. Nowadays, some of the young guys in the community don't show that respect. They're putting up a front or something, I don't know. But I know they're real standoffish unless you really get to know them, or if you get to know some of their friends and they learn that you're not out to get them. And that you're there to make sure the neighborhood's good. Make sure nothing's going on. As long as they're being good, then they don't have anything to worry about. The issue is a lack of communication between police and the community. If you want justice, if you want a good neighborhood, then start talking to us. I've seen a lot of things change. I know certain things that need to be changed. Dr. Lorenzo Boyd, a prominent researcher on
1: police-community relations and director of the Center for Advanced Policing at the University of New Haven, has found that what change in policing looks like starts with curriculum. Dr. Boyd emphasizes in his work that police training must be taught from the perspective of the community. Officers must understand community concerns in order to become more empathetic and better prepared to work with diverse populations. Dr. Boyd has also found that policing itself isn't always the problem. There's also the societal problem. Police going into situations where they are not needed, but are being placed there because of citizens calling about threats that aren't really threats. This often escalates and leads to altercations that could have been
2: avoided if citizens better understood the role of police. The biggest thing everybody needs to realize is that we're trying to do what's best for them. You can't trust the police if you think they're going to throw you under the bus, but it goes both ways. As a police officer, You have to know how to talk to the community and then they're going to listen and we can work together. So you just got to have good communication between the two. And that's where we lack and that's where they lack. We all have work to do.
1: We want to welcome to the show Dr. Keisha Warren Gordon, who is an associate professor of criminal justice and criminology at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. Dr. Warren Gordon led the Facing Community Policing Project. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So,
0: Keisha, what compelled you to lead the Facing Community Policing Project?
3: So, that's an interesting question because I don't know that I came up with that idea as much as it was um, a request from the Whiteley community. There had been a situation where there was a video of a police um, citizen interaction and the citizens had concern about the video and what was in it. Was it appropriate interaction between the citizen and the police officer? And so from that, um, I spoke with my community stakeholders and they wanted us to work to really look at the relationships between the police and the community. What's there? Are there problems? Are there good things? What does that look like?
0: Mm-hmm. Can you kind of give us some context of the Whiteley community, of um, some of the issues that the community may face or kind of the, the history of the community?
3: So the community is um, a very resilient community. Um, about 1,500 Members, people who live in the community, um, a very old community um, in the sense of demographics. It tends to be on the higher end of of older um, residents and age, um, but very collective. Um, you can't walk down the street of Whiteley and someone not blow their horn at you, even if they don't know you. Everyone <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> everyone, great. everyone knows everyone in Whiteley. And if they don't know you and you're in Whiteley, they're going to get to know you. Mm-hmm. And if you're there for the right purposes, you're family. So working with Whiteley and having a history um and a relationship with the community and, and the stakeholders has been a very natural and organic experience for me. Um, Whiteley also has a strong relationship with Ball State University. Um, they have, the, and, and I would think that they're probably one of the more organized communities in Muncie, which helps in terms of um, community engagement and relationship building. I
0: mean, the Whiteley Community Council is one like national. Yes. Awards. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yes. They um this past summer they went to a conference and they actually won another community award. Wow. And um I was very proud of that and um they actually took some of the Facing Project books and were able to highlight um our work um, during that conference.
1: That's really great. You're an associate professor of criminal justice and criminology. How do you view policing?
3: So, um I'm going to borrow the work of Lorenzo Boyd because my area isn't really policing. It's more community engagement. It's more of people's voice in community. But Lorenzo Boyd talks about policing as a collective work. So it's not just law enforcement. And and he doesn't necessarily like the term law enforcement because law enforcement, enforcing of the laws, is a very small percentage of what a police officer does. So what are they doing that other time? Community building, some aspects of social work, some aspects of psychology at times. So how do we look at this, this job this responsibility as being more than just law enforcement. And so I think that that's how I borrow and that's how I look at police officers. Are you doing more than just giving tickets? If that's if all you're concerned with is this law enforcement aspect of this job, then you're not probably great at your job.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like students are disrupted when they come into the field thinking they're going to study law enforcement to be a police officer, for instance, if that's their end goal, and community engagement, psychology, social work comes into play, do you feel like it disrupts the narrative that they've been taught?
3: I do. Um, the it, it disrupts the CSI, that media representation of what policing is. And it really causes, for those of us who teach um, from a different standpoint, who teach from a critical lens, it really causes students to um, take a step back and really think about consciously who they are and what they want to be um, when we do it right. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're, you're a, a black woman and a criminology professor. Right. And you teach primarily white students. Right. Uh, I mean, because we're in Indiana and to some extent, and also uh, the field itself is kind of um, more dominated. Right, um, white
3: male dominated. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, w- what do you hope your students like learn from these projects? And um, what are some experiences that you've had with students uh, as they're kind of opening their minds to these issues?
3: Yeah, So I so the first part of that, what do I hope my students learn? Um, at the core of it the humanity of of everyone that 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 people are are people and that we all have feelings and emotions and that um, the color of a person's skin should not require you to fear them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing that that we want because every every time we see something on TV um, uh, hear a news a news um, show about a police officer with a with an encounter of a person of color. My first inclination is that person feared that person of color, and so they reacted out of their fear. So to displace that notion of having to fear um, people of color, but also to put people of color in positions of power that students can see them in a positive way in leadership, Because most of my students, not only have they not interacted with people of color, they especially haven't had a person of color in a position of power. So for them to come into my class, and I primarily teach upper division classes, this is the first time they've had a black woman in front of a classroom telling them what they're going to be doing for the semester. And so not all of them, but for some of them, that is a culture shock. That is a reality check of, oh my goodness, who is she to be telling us what to do? Um, And we see that. Um, I've seen that in situations where um, students have gone to my chair and said, you know, she's teaching us anti-policing. And my chair comes back to me and says, you're doing a good job because you're making them think. You're making them think about things that um, they haven't had to think about before. So keep doing what you're doing and um, keep challenging them. Um, And then it becomes an issue for me to figure out how do I circumvent that. So you have a person saying, she's teaching anti-policing. I'm not teaching anti-policing. I'm teaching another way in which we can go about policing. And so what do I have to do? I bring in police officers who are allies, who are friends, who have known me for years, um, who know my work, and have them come in and guest lecture or talk about the readings that the students are assigned and talk about why why they are appropriate. So finding ways to address the students in a way that keeps them thinking critically, but also understands the balance of authority and power um, that I have in the classroom, if that,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Aside from being an associate professor of criminal justice and criminology, and and being an expert in many ways in this field, you're also a mom, right? And we see peppered over and over, more so now than than mm-hmm. before, because of social media and people taking control of media in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. We're more aware of violence against the black community, oftentimes mm-hmm. at the hands of the police. And we hear about the talk. Mm-hmm. How do you talk to your kids about policing and balance being a criminal justice professor, but also having to have a serious talk with your kids?
3: Right. So um, f- for years, my dad, every every time. So my middle boy is 12. And every time something would come up, he would call us and say, did you have that talk? And I know I haven't had that talk and I'm not going to have that talk. What are you waiting on? And so I see my son as a very free, happy, go lucky child. And I did not want to take that away from him. I didn't want to take that away from him with fear. I didn't want to take that away from him with anxiety. Um, my kids, as much as they spend time with me, um, at home, they also spend time with me at work. So they engage with police officers. They engage with um, people who work in the system. So I never wanted to give them that. And one day, my son went into a store and he bought a, he wanted to buy a video game. And I'm not the video game mom. My husband does video games with the kids. So we couldn't agree on this video game. And he got upset and um, purchased the game, got upset, and walked out of the store without a bag and a receipt. So part of this talk is that you can't do what everyone else does because you don't look like everyone else. And the last thing you can do is walk out of a store without a bag or a receipt. So I said to him, why would you walk away without getting a bag and a receipt? And so he said, everyone else does it. And so that's when the reality hit that we needed to start having some conversations with my son that we hadn't been having because he's not everyone else. He is a young black boy and he cannot walk into a store and buy something and not get a bag and a receipt. That's just, he can't take that for granted. And so I was kicking myself. I called my husband at work and I said, we have to have this conversation with him. And he said, yeah, your dad is right. We should have had this conversation a long time ago. And so that night um my husband showed him some videos that we had purposely not been sharing in our family of police interactions and why he can't do that because for for the family and for him it wasn't about the bag or the receipt it was about I'm upset because mom didn't do mom won't let me do what I want to do so I'm going to disobey a rule but for a black child Sometimes disobeying a rule has a larger consequence than for other children. And so we had to have the first of many conversations. Um, He wanted to go to the mall and hang out with his friends. Um, Okay, you can go and hang out with your friends, but mom or dad has to be there. I can't just drop you off and say, I'll pick you up in an hour. Know and a lot of parents may say, okay, yeah, we, we do the same thing, but the reason why you do it is probably different than the reason why I do it as a black mother. So I often have to balance my understanding of law enforcement with my understanding of what it is to be a black mom. Now, I don't go around telling my children that police officers are bad. I don't think police officers are bad. As a matter of fact, every time I see a police officer, I make a point to ask that that police officer for stickers in front of my children because I want them to understand that not every police officer is out to stereotype you, harm you, but at the same time, there are things that you have to do to ensure your safety.
0: Every police officer is walking around with stickers. And- well, and <laughs> I actually, I think medical professionals,
1: too. And I know this because of Corey, that yeah. he'll often have stickers on him in case a kid comes into the ER and they ask for a sticker.
3: Yeah, we my, my kids were going to school on a campus, on a university campus. And um, my middle one walked up to a police officer And said, because the police were always at at the school kind of patrolling the traffic, because traffic was bad. And he said, do you have a a sticker? And um, the police officer said, no. And he said, you're always supposed to have stickers. And he was about four at this time. (laughs) And so the next day, there was another police officer there. And that police officer said, hey, were you the kid asking for the stickers yesterday? And my son said, yes. And he said, here's here's some stickers. So at some point, he had had a conversation with this other officer to remember to give my kids stickers. So I don't talk to my children and tell them that police officers are bad because I don't believe that police officers are bad. You have police officers who act out of fear, out of stereotypes, out of prejudice, and out of racism. And those are the police officers that are bad, that make all police officers look bad. If you go back to our storytelling, none of our citizens had stories of bad encounters with police officers. And we did not solicit saying, we want only good stories. We just asked the community to share your stories. And none of them had bad stories. And all of those citizens who participated in in that were Black. So this notion that all Black people have a dislike for the police, that's not true. Just like the notion that every police officer is bad is not true. But there are some bumps that need to be filled in.
0: So you're in the, the business of putting together a syllabus and helping people become more educated mm-hmm. around all these topics. If you could put together a syllabus, a simple syllabus for just our general listener, uh, wh- what books could they be reading? What documentaries should they be watching? What movies should they be watching interacting with?
3: So I'm not a big movie person, but I do um, show the movie Crash, um, because it really gets to the heart of stereotyping, racism, that sort of thing. Um, Nicole van Cleve's book, Crooked County, um is a very good book. It gets to the heart of um, the criminal justice system in Chicago because it's not just about policing. Um, your the police officer is the first encounter you have with a larger criminal justice system. Any work right now, I'm, I'm really into um, work on intersectionality, which opens people's eyes into the overlapping aspects of race and gender and any other othering that we have. Um, so um, the uh, Hillary Potter's work, um, Jennifer Nash's work, um and of course, right now, um, the work um, How to Be Anti-Racist really gets into what racism is, what it looks like. And to say you're not racist is not enough. It's the actions that you carry out to stop racism. So if you're in a a group of people and they tell a racist joke or a sexist joke or or a homophobic joke, and you laugh it off and you don't correct them, that's being silent. That's not being anti. So how do we become anti those things, those isms? How do we work towards that? So I'm really um, excited to be reading this. My goal was to finish it um, two weeks ago, and I haven't been able to do that. Um, But hopefully I can get some reading time today. Great,
1: Dr. Keisha Warren-Gordon, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Ball State University, thank you for joining us and for sharing your story.
3: Thank you.
0: To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to
1: share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode,
0: find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others.